for me, not selling the business and focusing my life on, okay, I'm going to keep the business, but I'll let the business be a separate part. It's not, it's not my whole identity. If someone asks me, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I golf. You know, oh, I also own a business that does things, but I don't want to be identified with that. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable, location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Alrighty, we are bringing the heat this week. This is the second part of our interview with Mark Brenwall. If you haven't listened to the first part, do go back and listen to it. So last week, Mark talked frankly about the reasons he left a well-paid job and fancy loft in San Francisco, and he ended up in Asia, and he eventually started an Amazon FBA business called Wad Nation, which sells CrossFit products. He started out selling jump ropes and then developed into other items like wrist straps and stuff like that. Basically anything that a CrossFitter might need. And so just for context, that business currently nets him around $30,000 a month in profit. Shout out for sharing the profit figures. Got to respect that. Got to respect that. I know most people share the revenue, which I think is for obvious reasons, but Mark is a total boss and is willing to be transparent with us all, and we appreciate that. So in this episode, Mark is going to share some insights about Amazon FBA, his unorthodox but seriously cool business philosophy, and something that has always stuck with me since I very first met Mark, and his struggles over whether or not to sell Wad Nation. Now, the Amazon FBA seller's landscape has changed a lot since Mark started his business in 2014. So I started out by asking him whether it was something he would choose to start out today. I mean, I'm really glad I got in when I did because it's a lot harder now than it was then. I know this from a lot of sellers who have been selling for many years and their first product is still their best product, right? So I think that jump rope is 50% of my business, even though I sell now 12 different products. What are some of the things that insiders know about selling on Amazon that's difficult to decipher from blogs and podcasts? Anybody who is making a significant earning at Amazon has tools and resources that somebody starting Amazon will not have. It's probably not in my best interest to go into the great detail there. Anybody who gets into entrepreneurship needs to find a group who they can connect with. And it doesn't necessarily have to be specific to your business, although I am in Amazon groups, and these are groups that meet in real life as well as online, who we help each other a lot. When you're dealing with something like Amazon, there's so much going on back there. And Amazon offers so many different products and tools, and you know you can't know it all yourself. And so I have, this, I have many resources of places where if I have a question, I can ask. And when we meet in person, we share things like, oh, I have this guy who does 3D modeling, who you can use for your project. And, you know, you just share a lot of tools and tricks. And, you know, I think that's smart advice for anybody in any business. Don't go it alone. On that point, do you feel like there's a lot of misinformation perpetrated by blogs and podcasts? It's hard for me to say because I, I really don't read that stuff. 
I don't read any newbie blogs about how to sell on Amazon. I don't follow any YouTubers trying to teach people how to sell on Amazon. I would imagine that there are a lot of resources that are saying how easy it is to get started. I don't think, I wouldn't recommend it to somebody. It's hard and, and it's expensive. Like getting started in Amazon is capital intensive to say the least. Like I went in blissfully ignorant, you know, like I started with the $4,000 purchase of jump ropes. I soon realized that if you have a successful product, you have to be manufacturing product. You have to have that product on a ship. At the same time, you have to have product at Amazon. So that's triple your initial investment, right? Assuming that something starts to sell. And so many of us, including me, run into cash flow issues when they start. If you're going to be successful, you got to get through that. It's tough. You came to the table with a lot, though. And we're going to talk about your code of ethics, but one of the things I've always been attracted to is people who've changed their life in the middle of their life. I always think of Ulysses S. Grant, a confirmed failure at the age of 38. He was given a charity job by his wife's father working in a store. He was drinking all the time. And then the Civil War broke out. He became the second most important general in American history, arguably. But the interesting thing, if you look back at his story, is that you know, he wasn't just a store owner. He was coming to the table with a lot of things in the middle of his life. I'm wondering, do you have a perspective on that? Like a lot of people think, I think they can't make a change at the age of 38. I mean, it's funny now. The expat community, at least the group that I spend most of my time with, is, is generally younger than I am, generally in their 30s or maybe even 20s. And when I tell them I'm just about to turn 50, they just can't believe it. They're like, you, you got to be kidding. Because they don't know, like, for years, like, we're just hanging out. Like, we're just, we're the same. In my opinion, anybody who I connect with, I don't care really what age you are, we're the same. If the question is, can you change in the middle of your life, or, or what is that experience like? I actually think probably a lot of people should change in the middle of life. I think being young is hard. The media influence and technology influence, like being young is difficult because you just don't know who you are, right? And so you end up making these decisions way too early that lock you into a life that you may not. Like taking six figures of college debt as an example. That's a big obvious one, right? Uh, marrying someone who isn't going to be the right person. Living in a place that, you know, you don't love. Even things like deciding whether you want to share your data with Facebook. You know, when you're young, you don't have those decisions. You have to be on the technology. You have to be in the mix. I think being young is difficult. And I went through something traumatic, getting sober, right? And so that was sort of the, the obvious time for me to make a decision of what, what's okay, now what's next. For many people, it's divorce. But for those that aren't, that are just living in sort of an unhappy, unfulfilled life, that's really hard. You know, like if there is no traumatic event for them to make a big change, you know, what's the other option just to keep trudging along? And that's, that's really sad. Don't wait for the civil war to pop up. And I think maybe people in the middle of their life underestimate how much of an asset they're coming to the table with. I mean, in your case, on our last interview, I said, oh, so you knew a little something about web development when you came to the Philippines and you stopped me and you're like, no, no, I knew a lot about web development. <laughs> and you had some savings. 
I will say this. You know, I worked in San Francisco in a very high-end design firm, right? Several of them. So I was a web developer for design, very expensive high-end design agencies. When you have that kind of career, you are very intimately aware of deadlines and budgets and doing what you say you're going to do in the time frame you say you're going to do it. There is no other option. That is your job, to deliver what you say you're going to deliver on time, under budget. And I think having that experience, although ultimately it wasn't the right one for me, but having that experience has been really great for being an entrepreneur because I still have those same values. If you say, hey, let's meet at 10, I'm usually there at 5 to 10. You know, that is just like ingrained in me. Where I will say that many of the other entrepreneur or digital nomads that I meet who haven't had the experience, the millennial, the younger ones who just got lucky enough to decide that this was the life for them before they had to go through a career, they're kind of missing like, oh, no, no, no. You said you were going to do it on Monday and it's like, it's it's Thursday. Like, yeah, 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 I'll get to it. No, 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 no. It doesn't work that way. Well, another thing that you came equipped with and you put it nicely, is a strong sense of yourself. And uh, I want to unveil something to you today called the Brenwall Code. I just want to jump in here to say that what I'm sort of jokingly calling the Brenwall Code is just a list of business principles and, and observations that I've had spending so much time with Mark over the years. And he's really someone I've always looked up to as an entrepreneur who has a strong personal constitution and a strong sense of self and and really thinks about how those goals and values relate to his business goals. I thought it would be cool to write out this thing called the Brenwall Code, list off these principles to him and see what his reaction is. So back to the interview. This is the thing that most impressed me when I first met you is that you had a strong personal constitution that you were not willing to violate for profit. And this is very hard to do. And I think it's incredibly inspiring and worth thinking about. So I have a 10-parter here. And I want you to respond to each part or modify. Sure. Number one, work less than four hours a day. I love it. True? True. Yeah. I tell everybody that I work one hour a day now. And that is the fact. You're not bragging. Why is this important to you? It's important to me because one of the big reasons why I left the States was the book, The 4-Hour Workweek, which I know is talked about a lot on this podcast. Well, the book talks about, you know, well, it talks about a 4-Hour Workweek, which is less than I'm working now. And I've jived with that. I mean, it, it moved a lot of us here to Asia or wherever, just outside of their own ecosystem. I didn't build my business doing one hour a day, but I quickly got to a place where I could run a business that was one hour a day. And so I'm holding myself to that flame and saying, okay, you have a business that makes more money than you spend. You can run it for one hour a day. Try and do that and see what else comes up. You know, see what else life gives you when you're not busy just chasing more. And, you know, for me lately, it's been golf, which, (laughs) which I love. You know, there's a really amazing feeling about that. Like, what is interesting to me at the moment? I'm about to go traveling for eight months with my wife. Let me live there, wherever there is. Let me be there 
and not on my laptop and not, you know, tied to this idea of like, is my business big enough? Is it growing fast enough? No, my business is good. It's making plenty, right? So let me see what else life has to offer. I'm not going to beat this to death. I'm just going to mention it in passing. But every freaking wealthy person that I meet, if you were to categorize how much time they spend on their main income source, it is very, very commonly less than four hours a week. Number two, number two rule to the Brenwall Code, never a client, only customers. Amen. You can't appreciate that until you've had clients. So client would be? A very needy, needy person who holds the keys to everything that you want. Don't get me wrong, I've had great clients, but like I said, I was working in these very sort of high-end design agencies. So these clients are like Cisco and The Gap and Facebook and very talented, very driven, very detail-focused, very very difficult clients, Mm -hmm. very needy. And you have to serve them because that is what they're paying huge amounts of dollars for. You know, I'd always think like, oh, I can't wait till this project is over because then life is going to be different. But then it took me years to figure out like, oh no, right after that comes the next job, comes the next client. If you think about it, every client is your boss. So I not only had my own boss, but I had the client as a boss. And you have to do what they want. And I was just, I was done with that. I wanted to be my own boss in all, in all ways. And even now, like that value has carried forward and I I treat my customers as if they're my boss, not, not in the same way, but I, I'm very focused on customer service because I want to make my customers happy. Right. And that probably comes from the world of making my clients happy. So it, it paid off, but I don't, I don't ever want to do that again. And I want to get on my soapbox. I feel like I got a soapbox for every brand. Hit it, it, man. Hit it. It's a hard business to run an agency. Hard. It's freaking hard. Yeah. And so there's a lot of people that help people run agencies. And whenever those people that help people run agencies say, why don't you just exchange your low dollar clients for high dollar clients? Yeah. It makes, it's more money. It makes more. And I think to myself, that motherfucker never had a high dollar client. For sure. Dude, like I'm not paying you $5,000 a month. I'm paying you $25,000 a month. Now get off your ass. Yeah. And look, I'm just saying like, People make it easy that this like never a client, only customers. Love it. Number three, own your own customers. I will say that own your own customers is a very good idea. And probably at that time, there's a lot of things I could be doing with my business that I have decided not to do. A little over a year ago, I almost sold this business. And when I decided not to, I really looked at if I'm not going to sell this business, what am I going to do with it, right? And then it became very clear to me that the idea is for me to optimize it and not work on it so much, right? So I looked back at like all the things that I did that didn't work. Like I tried to move into Europe. I tried to, to sell more on Shopify. And last year when I sort of had that experience of like, okay, really, let's, what's the next year going to look like for me? I looked at what 80-20, you know, what's working, and honestly, like Amazon's working, you know, and call me lazy or, or what. I just like, you know, it's working. Like, let me just keep it working and go golfing more. Number four, enjoy a physical practice every day. Good one. So back to golf. <laughs> when I said that, I was heavy into CrossFit. I will say I have put the CrossFit shoes away for the last year, which I am hesitant to say because that really hurts my ego. 
but I had a motorcycle accident and broke my ankle and have been really tentative about it. So I'm picking up the sport that I love. I look at it like I'm building my retirement. Like I can golf until I'm 90. And so why not spend this time while I'm still young getting good at it? You know, I love being on the golf range because to me it's a meditation. And how I'm hitting the ball is sort of a metaphor for how I am in my life at the moment. I think that whether it is yoga, which I also love, or CrossFit or golf or something that lets me be in my mind and be in the moment, I think that's super powerful. I think people can meditate. I can't meditate. At least I haven't been able to yet. And that's my meditation. Number five, if the sweater feels fuzzy, take it off. I love that. (laughs) Did I say that? Yeah, you did. And so the context under which you came up with the sweater correlate is you talked about how all these people like give you advice and it might be really good advice, but if you take it on and it doesn't feel right to you, you should discard it. Also really challenging in the entrepreneur world, you know, for those of us who don't have business partners, we're on our own. You know, we make the decisions day by day for ourselves. Surrounding yourself with other entrepreneurs in different phases of their business will give you lots of advice. I mean, I'll be frank, I don't even go to masterminds anymore because I just don't want any advice. You know, if if there's a specific thing that I'm struggling with my business, I'll go to one person who I think can help me. But if I sit in a mastermind and I get 12 different opinions that they're talking really honestly more about themselves than they are about me, it just confuses me more. I still don't read business books. I don't listen to business podcasts. Like I just don't, I need to filter that noise out. I'm now more, much more focused on how does this decision make me feel? When I think about like going into Amazon Europe or moving on to Shopify, like I feel like I'm exhausted already. You know, I'm like, I'm not going to do that. Number six, live somewhere much cheaper than you can afford. I would never have been able to build a business like this living in San Francisco. Never. There are times when I needed to put every extra ounce of capital into the business. Living in a place cheaper than you can afford, but also it has high value, right? I I couldn't live in a place that was cheap and also shitty, or I'd still be in the Philippines. No offense, Philippines. That leaves us with number seven. (laughs) Live somewhere where there is a robust community of like minds. Yeah. That cannot be stressed enough. And, you know, now that I've lived here for five years in Chiang Mai, Thailand, I take it for granted. And I only realize it when I go somewhere that doesn't have a community. And just being around people who share your same ideas. Number eight, move up the food chain with your products and customers. I started with a jump rope and then just took it from there massage balls and knee sleeves and wrist straps and you're selling to the same people i even tried supplements wasn't my jam but i tried it start with one thing that you do really well and then keep growing it i launched a a new product i launched some tape for weightlifters just recently and that was a really good experience i don't launch as much as i used to now i'm focusing more on cutting my manufacturing costs and really optimizing the spend instead of launching new products. But the next product's going to probably be another jump rope. 
and I'm just going to keep working down the CrossFit space. Number nine, ruthlessly focus on profitability. Cut expenses. Even though I, I make more money than I ever thought I would, honestly, if I'm spending $25 on a monthly software that I don't use, cut it. Like I said, I've spent the last year focusing on how do I get my manufacturing costs down. One thing I've noticed, which seems obvious, right? But the, the more profitable a product is, just how much better your life is. Like, you know, selling a thousand things at a, at a penny profit or selling one thing with a thousand dollar profit, it's an obvious no brainer. So just cut. It's cut, not always cut. obvious though. It's not always obvious. That's true. It took me five years to figure that out. And also it took me a lot of goodwill with my manufacturers to get them to come down in prices and say, hey, we got a long-term relationship. Let's continue to do this. And the only way I can do this is if you cut the prices. You know, I had to let some staff go that was maybe not as valuable as I needed it to be. You know, I'm got to make some tough decisions. Number 10, final rule of the Brenwall Code. Resist the urge to grow for growth's sake. Oh, that is, that's, I think that's my favorite one. Why? In the entrepreneur crowd, this idea of, you know, I want a big business is ubiquitous. So I joined the Dynamite Circle five or six years ago. When I started, it was very much like what I call the coconut cowboy. Our minds were set at the goal of, you know, living on a beach, drinking coconuts every day. And I thought that was so cool. And it was so moving to me to aspire to that. But very quickly, the crowd started to mature. And we all moved from that goal to, okay, let's build a big business. And then the goal was, okay, let's sell a big business. And, you know, I kind of got swept up into that a little bit. But my roots are still in the coconut cowboy, right? My roots are still like, like, I'm already living the dream that I set for myself years ago. If I keep moving the goal, when am I ever going to have enough? When am I ever going to say, like, I've made it? If you're chasing more just for the sake of more, or you're competing with your friends or competitors for more, how much are you enjoying your life? That's a good question. Almost a year ago today, you came and sat on this couch at like 9 a.m. Right. After having read a business book, if I recall correctly. <laughs> Why did you do that? A little over a year ago, I, I thought that I wanted to sell my business. I went down the road of selling this business. I have a lot of friends who are in the business selling space. I also have a lot of friends who have sold businesses. And to be quite honest, I was afraid of not knowing how to continue to run my business. At the time, I felt like I got here by luck. I don't know how I'm going to continue to grow this thing or what to do with this thing. Let me just cash out and say goodbye. And so I went down that path and I talked to a bunch of brokers. It was a very interesting experience because at first I wasn't getting any of the offers that I thought the business deserved. And we took it off the market. So I'm talking to my wife and, you know, we're thinking, okay, we're not going to sell the business. What's next? You know, we kind of got fired up about a few ideas and got re-energized about the business. And of course, the universe said, oh, no, no, we're not done with you. <laughs> and then an offer came out that was exactly what I asked for. 
And I said, I'm, I want to walk away after all fees and expenses and everything. I want to walk away with a million dollars for this business. This is like post tax. You want like um, that seven in the figures bank. in the bank. Yeah. yeah. And the offer that would make that happen came after we had said, no, let's not sell. And we got re-energized. So now I'm sitting with this idea of these conflicting ideas of like, I'm, I'm excited to keep the business and do something with it. And also like I got the offer that I asked for. And that was just way more emotional than I thought it would be. And, you know, you had just written the book. Before the exit. Before the exit. Available on Amazon.com. Right. And a worthy purchase. (laughs) (laughs) Which I had read before I was about to sell. And it wasn't nearly as meaningful as when I was going through the process of selling. You talk about all the, the feelings that you have when you're going through the selling of the business which are fun to read, but unless you're going through those same emotions, you can't really fully appreciate them. So everything that you wrote, I was like, oh, I, I get every single part of that. In my soul, I feel what you're saying. And so I, I just knocked on your door and I said, dude, I need some therapy here. <laughs> and we talked about it for, I don't know, an hour of like, what could I do if I didn't sell the business? What would I do with the money if I did sell the business? What would I do with my time if I sold the business? We talked about disasters as well, if I recall. Yeah. We like brainstormed like the worst things that could happen. Right. That conversation I decided, walked away deciding that, no, I'm going to keep this. I will say for sure it's, it was the right decision. Now looking a year back, you know, and what I've been able to accomplish with optimizing the business, if I did sell this business even today, I would be looking for another business to buy to earn some income and i'd want the same business so why would i sell it right like once you get to like that two and a half three year mark which is what the offer was or whatever typically you know you get paid for your business on profitability advanced so it's kind of cool to like see that horse creep along the track and say like oh man i'm back to even totally and now it's gravy totally that kind of messes with your mindset too about growth and like how much you should be working and what you should be doing and like separating the idea of like your identity from the asset the last dcbkk you know i know we don't you don't put like mottos behind the event at least you don't broadcast what is what is the model behind this year's like the event? theme or the what theme. you're feeling right but i think the theme this year was enjoy your life more yes there was a lot of business stuff how to optimize your landing page and whatnot but some of the big talks were about how to enjoy your success in the moment today. How do you enjoy the success that you've had today? For me, not selling the business and focusing my life on, okay, I'm going to keep the business, but I'll let the business be a separate part. It's not, it's not my whole identity. If someone asks me, what do you do? I'm like, oh, I golf. You know, oh, I also own a business that does things, but I don't want to be identified with that. So as an adjunct to the Brenwall code, I hope you guys like this, is something I'm going to call the middle game of business. Just I guess I got that from chess. You know, the middle game is sort of once you've made all those opening moves and there's fireworks and all your pieces are out on the board, there's sort of this long grind in the middle. And another way you could think about it is a bit like taking a plane trip. The exciting part is, you know, planning, packing, boarding, going to the airport and all that. But once the plane lifts off the tarmac and you've reached your cruising altitude, you got to find a way to stay in your seat for many hours ahead. And sometimes that can be the most uncomfortable part of the journey. 
why is it so hard to write up a few SOPs, get some employees and make some money? Yeah, why is it hard? <laughs> it's hard like anything that you've never had that experience before. There are some things that you talk about in the book, like these thought experiments of hiring a CEO. And that one in particular is like something that I don't have that experience. I don't know how that works. I didn't know how to grow a business to the point where it was worth a million dollars. But it, I feel like I kind of got there by luck and, and hustle. And I f- was very unsure of like, okay, now that I have a business like that, can I keep it going and can I grow it? And do I know what to do with it? And so by me, very counterintuitively, like taking my focus off of my business has been the best thing for the business. Focusing on spending my time doing things that I love forced me to make the business more profitable, more streamlined. You know, that's where I am today. So it's a business that stands alone from you more so than something that flows directly from your effort. Exactly. I will open up my email every morning and look at the things that come through my desk and anything that is not just like a routine business thing, like, okay, pay this bill, forward this to my accountant, anything that takes some, some actual, like, okay, I need to sit down and think about how I'm going to approach this marketing plan. I don't want to do it. And I don't know that overall that that's, well, it's certainly not a way that you're going to grow a business. Although I will say my business has grown 15% over the last year with me focusing more on not working on it. So I don't know what to say about that. I would much rather do the things I need to do. My hour a day is, is those things. It's like, hey, logistics guy, check this out. And hey, bookkeeper, make sure this is covered. And then close my laptop and go golfing. If and when I do need to sit down and say, okay, I really need to address this sort of longer term project. And by longer term, I mean, I I think I had to think about it for like two hours. I'm like, I don't want to do that. But you do do that. I do it. Of course I do it. But what's interesting is you don't do it right that moment when the email comes in. And so, I mean, to bring it back full circle, we talked about the second greatest general in US history. The first greatest, George Washington, was famous for this. And he annoyed everybody around him because he just drug his feet he would just wait to make decisions because more information keeps coming in. You ever do this experiment where, um, you know, I didn't do email over the Christmas break. And if you just received an email, it, it demands a response. Like it, it calls out to you, says, Dan, respond to this email. If you wait three days and come back, there's like a half chance you still need to respond to it. Give it a week. Interesting. Do you still need to respond to that email? Right. Give it a month. Email has a half-life. And so after 30 days, you check your email. You can delete almost every email. It's true. I've often um, responded to certain listeners who've written me really heartfelt uh, accounts of them listening to the show. This has happened a lot of times, actually, where their email was so huge that I didn't feel I could respond appropriately. In a meaningful way. I would respond six months later, four months later, and say, this might be whack, but... Take it as a compliment that like I'm still thinking about your email four months later. Like this is still a live piece of work. Like I care about yeah. what you expressed. Now compare that with like the vast majority of email you receive. It's just useless after four Transactional, months. Transactional, right? Yeah. yeah. I feel like this whole George Washington approach to email and business and sticking to your guns and being you outside of the business actually it has this mystical quality of like, it just could work. Totally. 
<laughs> even now, like I was just looking through the Dynamite Circle forum and I see people talking about their profit margin and their current hustle, right? And I'm in a place where, where now I, if someone says like, hey, you know, I, I made 500,000 profit last year. This year I want to make a million. I don't write this, but my thinking is like, why? What is that? Is that extra 500,000 going to do for you? And I know that is something that only someone who has more than they need could say. So, you know, forgive me for that. I think it's a really valuable thought exercise. I don't write it because I don't think the person who wrote that would understand what I'm trying to say. You know, we're not in the same mind space. If and when I do meet people who, who I think can benefit from that, which is like, okay, you know, if I ask you what you do and you tell me like I am a copywriter for technology, okay, fine. But who are you? What is Dan? What is Steve? What is, who are you? Is way more than what you're doing for making money, right? And I think that that has been my focus for the last few years. The idea that, that I could reach the four-hour workweek goal which I actually, when I read it, and I didn't ever think that that was actually possible. That just seemed like a mythical thing. But to actually reach that goal, I owe it to myself to, in, to enjoy that and to not just chase the next shiny object. Mark Benwell, thanks for joining us on the pod. My pleasure. It was a blast. Mega ups to Mr. Brenwell for swinging by the show and... I hope you can get a sense for why he's one of the people that I look to for business advice, that I talk to about personal stuff, business stuff, and I so much enjoy spending time with them. So thank you, Mark, for coming by the show and sharing with us all. The theme here for me is really having a sense of yourself can be a strategic edge to getting what you want, essentially knowing what you want. I mean, it you know, in some ways, it's like the simplest stuff is the hardest stuff. And I think for me, this is kind of getting back to basics. Like, why are, why are we in this in the first place? And so maybe a takeaway from these two episodes is to figure out what your own code is. And maybe it's worth writing down and getting a sense for what it is and what it might mean to have to stick to that in the context of your business. So I hope you guys enjoyed this one. I certainly did. We'd love to hear your thoughts as always on everything we discussed. My email is dan at tropicalmba.com. Do reach out if you got a show idea or a comment or something you'd like to hear on the pod. And of course, you can always drop us a voice message over at tropicalmba.com slash voicemail. So that is it. We will be back as always next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.